You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Sophia Javaj, and I'm joined with Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Roger Lanius. I'm going to turn it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. We are so excited to have uh, Roger Lanius here. R- Roger has been the chief historian for NASA as well as a director at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. So let's begin, Roger, with just a, a quick idea of how we got to now. So can you tell us a little bit about, not, not like how we got to today, but but where you started with all of this? Where I started with this is uh, pretty interesting. I did a PhD in history, working on the history of the American West. So sort of frontier history, there's a bit of a relationship with that and the final frontier of space, I know. But uh, then I went to work for the Air Force, found out that that was a really good gig to study the history of flight. From there, I moved to NASA and ultimately to the Air and Space Museum. So where, where does all this start? Like you talked about being the, the history of the American West, but, but obviously you grew up as a child of the space race. Oh, yeah. So, so where, what are your earliest memories of, of space and rockets and astronauts, and where did this – where did it all begin? Oh, sure. So in the 1960s, obviously, the uh, Apollo program is underway, the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, the, the three big – uh, human spaceflight efforts of that particular era. And I was, you know, I was a kid watching this, and it was it was really cool. I mean, you know, I would have enjoyed being a part of it, but I couldn't handle the math. But regardless of that, I figured out that I could write to NASA. And back in those days, there was no email or anything. You literally wrote a letter. In my case, it was handwritten with a pencil and, and a big chief tablet, uh, and uh, send them something and talk about how you like that, and please send me some information. And then a few weeks later, you would get back in the mail a big package full of stuff. And the stuff was different every time. It might be mission patches. It might be little uh, fact sheets about something. It might be signed autographs of the astronauts on their pictures, all kinds of things. I wish I still had it. <laughs> so it's interesting to think about that because we talk about this idea of of selling the moon, not selling the moon, but the the cost of going to the moon is not not insignificant. No, and so part of the job of of NASA is to sell the importance of the moon landing to everybody. Right. What do they call marketing the moon? I right. guess the name of the title of a book. Right. So so can you talk about how? How, how important that was to NASA and why it was so relevant to their mission. Oh, sure. So uh, NASA believed that they had to convince the American public that this was a thing worth doing. And, uh, and, and while they had firm support in Congress and in the White House uh, to undertake the Apollo program, they didn't necessarily have firm support for everything that they wanted to do. And they had to constantly get the public sort of engaged in this stuff. And they did so in a whole variety of ways. One of them is, is the way that I just mentioned to you, providing information to people. They would uh, do this on an individual basis. They produced a lot of educational material that went to, to schools. And I encountered that in science classes when I was in, in grammar school as well as in high school later on. And, and then they used the astronauts. And they were 
fascinating how they were able to do that. Some of them were really engaging. They were charismatic. They were able to sort of uh, really speak to the public in ways that others couldn't. Some astronauts were, you know, sort of stiff and not very comfortable in, a, in the spotlight. Neil Armstrong was in that category. He never enjoyed doing that kind of, of activity. He would do it when he had to, but if he could figure out a way to get out of it, he certainly would. John Glenn, just the opposite. John Glenn loved to talk to people. He loved to go meet people. He'd love to go talk to, to kids at school or anywhere else. And some of them ended up on television. The Ed Sullivan Show routinely had astronauts, and they would come out and do little comedy bits with, with Ed Sullivan, of, of all things. Neither whom, ni- neither one of them, either Ed Sullivan or the astronauts, were very good as comics, <laughs> but they would try. And they worked with commercial producers for television and movies at the time. Some of your older uh, listeners may remember I Dream of Jeannie, which was about an astronaut and takes place during the space race of the 1960s. There was uh, feature films that were made that uh, NASA cooperated on, all as a means of, of sort of talking about what NASA was engaged in and what they were going to accomplish by going to the moon. You know, it's interesting to think about that because if you think about the marketing of that, it all starts in many ways with kids of the 19, right? You know, teenagers existed, but the idea of a teenager doesn't really come into being until the 1950s, right? Post-World right. War II. And, and you think about Walt Disney, for example, right? The early, you see a lot of these early Walt Disney, 1950s, early 60s with Werner von Braun and others, where they're really pushing it to the kids of why space travel is important mm-hmm. and maybe moving that on to the parents, right? If it's important, because it's a generational thing. Right. Is it not? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the, the campaign of the 1950s, which is earlier than the time we've just been talking about, was a little bit different. They were trying to convince the public that this was on the verge of happening. You're going to see this in the not-too-distant future. And, and that was important. So uh, I, I like to cite a couple – I like opinion polls because they are empirical data that you can actually do something with other than just someone's opinion. And in 1949, there was a, there was a – a public opinion poll in the United States taken that asked the question, do you think we will see a person on the moon in the next 25 years? And the response to that was overwhelmingly, or 75% roughly, said, no, we're not going to see this. And 25% thought we would. Within a decade, by 1959, at the time that NASA has established the Sputnik uh, crisis has taken place, the same poll is asked, and it's flipped in exactly the same way. In the next 25 years, are we going to see somebody on the moon? 75% say, yeah, absolutely, we're going to see this. And that, that brackets this campaign of the 1950s to explain that spaceflight is real. We can do this. We're going to see it in the relatively uh, soon time frame. And the Collier series of articles in the early 1950s, the Walt Disney television show that was a staple in my house when I was a kid. We always watched this as a family on Sunday nights. And th- it had episodes built around space flight, basically saying this is what's going to happen and we're going to live to see this. And it's so exciting what the future is going to bring to us. You know, you think about, you've talked about this before, that that space travel oftentimes is the long haul, right? We've got to be in this for for generations that, that our, our kids or their or grandkids will, will reap the benefits of what we do now, much like planting a garden or, or those kinds of things. 
And I'm wondering if the on-demand culture in which we live now is actually a hamper to that. It, there's, some, there's some truth to that, obviously. We have an immediacy in our culture, and we expect sort of immediate results, whatever it is that we're, we're talking about. We expect it to be almost magical. It's going to happen overnight. And uh, that makes us perhaps more present tense-oriented than future tense-oriented, and uh, it, it could be a, a challenge for us in terms of thinking about what's the next decade going to be like? What's the next 30 years going to be like? You know, who? nobody can really see farther than about 30 years in terms of what possibilities are because you're always projecting based upon what has happened thus far. But for the next 25 to 30 years, what are we going to see in space? I've got my predictions, but who knows if they're right. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because my I think about my childhood where I would imagine, you know, you and I are a generation apart that that your grade school recess was full of kids pretending to be astronauts and going to the moon and those kinds of things. Whereas, you know, I'm a child of the 70s and, and my grade school thing was deciding who was going to be Chewbacca and who was going to be Han Solo, <laughs> right? That, that it, was, it moved beyond this. This happened. It was history. And what does that lead to the future? And we have this interesting idea that, you know, the Apollo program ends in, what, 1972, right? right for a variety of reasons. So I guess the question is, why, why do we stop? Is it a failure of vision? Is it a failure of national will? Is it a failure or is it not? A, is it a, a reality, a, a realization of the cost and those kinds of things? Yeah, I think fundamentally it's about a realization. Uh, so the expansive spending on space of the 1960s, the investment that took us to the moon, uh, is really built around a Cold War objective. And that was about beating the Russians. Russians were a pure competitor. We were concerned that we were going to get annihilated at any point. The Russians were also afraid of us for the same reason. And all it took was a decision on the part of one side or the other to push a button to launch missiles. And that would have been the case. So that's important as, a, as an ingredient. And Apollo and spaceflight in general becomes a very public statement of scientific and technical excellence carried out on a world stage in which everybody is watching this. And that was significant in terms of swaying other nations, especially non-aligned nations. Many of them had achieved their independence after World War II. They had been colonies of Britain or France or whoever before that time. And, uh, and, and they're non-aligned. They're not a part of this Cold War crisis, but they're very interested in how it's going to turn out. And they want to be on the winning side, whatever that is. So who are you going to cast your lot with? Who are you going to make alliances with? Apollo demonstrates to them that the Americans can accomplish pretty much anything they set them, that set their minds to. And that is really significant. Now, of course, the Russians are trying to do this, too, and they have some success, especially early on, but their technological capabilities were not as advanced as the Americans. And framing this discussion into a Cold War uh, box, we're starting with Eisenhower, right? This, this takes place after Truman, so mm -hmm. Eisenhower and Kennedy – uh, and, and then, of course, Lyndon Johnson, who I think is interesting, who fashions this as really more of a societal, right. like, you know, societal thing. But can you talk a little bit about John F. Kennedy's Cold War philosophy and his commitment to going to the moon? I mean, is this, is this a guy who's saying, I believe we should go to the moon? Or is this a guy who's saying this publicly because 
what I really am saying is we want to beat the Russians. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, he's saying I want to beat the Russians. And he privately said this many, many times. And there's a famous episode in which uh, he's talking to the NASA administrator, a fellow by the name of James Webb at the time, in which Webb is talking about how we got to do this and that and the other. And, and we may not beat the Russians. Who knows? It's possible that that's not going to happen. Kennedy sort of cuts him off and says, look, if this is not about beating the Russians, I don't really care about it at all. I'm not that interested in space. Uh, but I am interested in winning the Cold War. And, and so that, that practicality is very much a part of this particular agenda as the early 1960s unfold. And the, the legend, I don't know if this is a legend or not, but the story is, is that he, that NASA is unaware of his declaration to go to the moon by the end of the decade. I mean, you know, he want that, that the timeline he sets is not in conjunction with what NASA has discussed. Is that true? That's correct. So, um, and NASA didn't have necessarily a timeline in place. Uh, they wanted to do these things. There's no question about this. This was a part of their long-term agenda. But did it have to be done by 1969? In fact, there's a little wiggle room there, too. Uh, Kennedy wanted to say initially by the end of his term, and he was thinking of, if he served a full two terms, he would be out of office in January of 69. He'd like to have it by, by then because he'd be in office. That would be great. They told him that, you know, that's probably not a good answer. And they agreed upon by the end of the decade. But then here's the, the kicker on that. When is the end of the decade? Is the end of the decade 1969 or is it 1970? You can make a case if you recall something like uh, the Y2K problem, presumably. When does the decade end? When does the new decade start? And, uh, and you could even have the wiggle room to go into 1970 if you had to. I wonder if the – of course, you know, we're armchair quarterbacking here. But if he knew how different it would have been if he would have known that a Republican would have been in power – when we land on the moon versus a, a Democrat, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no way to know what he was thinking in the back of his mind about the fact that, that uh, uh, he invariably would out, be out of office in January of 1969, even if he had served a full two terms. Uh, and that could have been a, a, a Republican in the White House by then. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have liked that. And I, and I suspect even more so there was no greater friend of NASA and the Apollo program than, than not Kennedy as much as Lyndon Johnson. And I'm sure he's thinking, you know, I'd really like to be in place when all this happens, and I sure as heck don't want to have a, Demo or have a Republican there because he gets to take the glory for something we did. Right, and Richard Nixon, of course, is the president when we land on the moon. And, and what was Nixon's commitment to the space program? He, you know, he wanted to see it carried out. At the, by this time, it was, it was a fate accompli. They were going to do this. So he wasn't going to kill the program uh, and, and not carry it out. He was very concerned that, th that the landings might be a failure and that that would be viewed as a failure on his part because it happened on his watch if that were the case. And there's a really interesting story uh, at the time of the moon landing in the summer of 1969. Nixon's only been in office for a few months and, um, and Frank Borman, uh, who had been a, uh, uh, an astronaut uh, on Apollo 8 uh, and had connections into the White House, uh, called up the speechwriter there, a fellow by the name of William Sapphire, who would later on to go to be a journalist for the New York Times. 
uh, and said, you know, we can't guarantee these guys are not going to be lost. It's conceivable that this is going to fail. You just need to be prepared for that. And Sapphire then wrote a speech that Nixon would give should the astronauts be lost. And they were specifically thinking of lost on the moon, which was the worst of all possible actions. Um, you know, if, if the rocket blows up and they blow up with it, that's a very quick and, and obviously tragic uh, set of occurrences. But uh, worse still would be they land successfully on the moon, but for whatever reason, the rocket to bring them back up does not work. And they're stranded on the moon. They're alive. They're talking to mission control. They can call their wives and families, but they're going to die there. That was the real fear. And Sapphire wrote this speech. Fortunately, they never needed to use it. A, a few years later, you know, when he finished his term in the White House, he boxed up his, his professional papers. They went to the National Archives. And 20 years later, some historians went through them and found this. And there was a sort of a hullabaloo about it at the time. Uh, lots of journalists did stories about it. They called up Sapphire, who was still alive, and he said, yeah, I wrote it. And fortunately, we never had to use it. When I left the office, I just sent it to the archives, and that was the end of it. But we needed to be prepared. And you can access that speech. You can read it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's online. online. You right? can go get it. So what was the contingency for Armstrong and Aldrin if that happened? Uh, well, they, they were going to die. Right. Was, was conce there a, conceivably. Know. I mean, there was nothing they could do about it if they failed. Uh, you know, they, they did everything they could to ensure that the rockets worked properly. But – once they're there, they're there. You can't go out and repair it. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's move into our first musical break. Now, as those listeners know, we always ask our guests to give us a list of songs for us to choose from that mean something to them. And the song that we're selecting for our first break is the classic Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra. Would you like to comment of why you selected this song? <laughs> well, I like the song. And when I do karaoke, that's my standard. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Not that I'm very good at karaoke, but nonetheless. All right. So Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you.
with song Let me sing forevermore You are all I long for All I worship and adore In other words listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. So when we left, we were talking about, uh, obviously, we mentioned two astronauts specifically, John Glenn and, and Neil Armstrong. And of course, you know, we we kind of sidestepped Alan Shepard, the first American in space for what, four minutes or five mm, minutes or right. whatever, uh, but then goes back to the moon right later on. And we we resonate with John Glenn, who becomes the first American to orbit the Earth. He's probably the first celebrity astronaut, is that fair to say, of of the original seven. And uh, we'll – we talked about his personality of being gregarious as compared to Neil Armstrong, who will always be remembered as the first man to walk on the moon. And I want to talk about one – this will be two-part question. One, why does John Glenn not continue – with the astronaut corps, and, and if he did, would he have been one of the early moon people? Uh, that's what well, you know what I mean. And secondly, you know, there's this apocryphal story that that you hear that Charles Lindbergh, who's the first person to successfully solo across the Atlantic Ocean in an airplane, uh, who, who that defines him for the rest of his life, has this kind of meeting with Neil Armstrong before he goes to the moon and says. You know, when you get back, don't let this define you. So can we talk about John Glenn and his career, why he doesn't continue, and Neil Armstrong and his career and why he doesn't continue? Well, John Glenn could have continued. Now, he did have some uh, – a condition that was – that came up in the aftermath of his flight that suggested that he was probably going to be grounded for some period of time, an inner ear issue that uh, created problems of balance. And it's not that that wouldn't have been overcome and he might have been able to fly later, but he was not going to fly again on Mercury. So we're now talking about at the very least he's going to be around NASA for another three or four years before he gets to fly again. And uh, that would put him into the Gemini program. It's conceivable he might have been able to do it. Uh, it's conceivable also he could have carried on with the, with the Apollo program and been one of the, the people to go to the moon. But he also had other ambitions. And, uh, and one of those was to become a political figure. He very definitely wanted to do that. He was encouraged by that, uh, by th- those opportunities, by, uh, by President Kennedy, whom he came, became quite close with. And, uh, and Kennedy said, you know, you, as an American hero, I mean, Kennedy himself was sort of a World War II hero who parlays that into a, a very successful political career. And, and Glenn had the same, the, the same uh, capabilities and the same desires. And, and Kennedy made the point to him, and it's obvious, uh, you know, you want to make a real difference in the world? You want to change things? Here's a way to do it. And he will eventually become a senator. Right. And then eventually will go back into space in the <laughs> 1998. 90s as, a, as, as, a, <laughs> as a mission specialist on, on STS-95. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, and, and by the way, there's, other, there's one other piece to this. There were people at, uh, at, uh, at the uh, Manned Spacecraft Center 
in those days, but now, now the uh, the Johnson Space Center in Houston, who were telling him, were telling John Glenn at the time, you know, there's a real concern about you flying again because you are such a hero. What if something were to happen to you? And uh, you're you serve a better need for NASA as a as a figure who can engage the public than as a person who undertakes these risks in space. And that suggested that that there were at least some people who were thinking, you know, maybe he shouldn't fly again. So faced with all of these options before him, including this negative one of not being allowed to fly again by NASA, and we don't know that that was ever the case. There's nothing in writing. Nobody's ever owned up to that. But uh, there was some fear on his part that that was a possibility. Uh, he took the option of moving out, and uh, he went to work in the industry for a little while, made a bunch of money doing that. That's fine, and then ultimately goes on to a very successful political career. And uh, so his, his return to space is really more symbolic. It's just, just the, this is John Glenn coming back to was it a was it a, a publicity thing for the for NASA to say oh come back or I mean there's really no other reason to send him up there right Well you, you you can make the case that there's a publicity value to it no doubt about that John Glenn is an American hero and uh, and by the time that he flies in 1998. Uh, there's a lot of people who are not very interested in the shuttle program. I mean, it launches on a regular basis. They go up and they do things. The things that they do are useful, but they're not garnering a lot of attention for lots of people. Clearly, putting John Glenn on a shuttle mission allows them to, I mean, it's 1962 all over again. I mean, you know, this guy's a hero. And, uh, and, and if anybody ever doubted that, I love the statement from, um, from Walter Cronkite at the time, famous newsman. Probably everybody's heard of him at some point who basically said, John Glenn is an American hero. As far as I'm concerned, he can do anything he wants. And if it means flying in space, let him fly in space. And, of course, he did. But NASA had been sending up people who were not formal astronauts before that time. They had flown two members of Congress, including Jake Garn from Utah, who had flown in the 80s. And Bill Nelson, who's now the NASA administrator, uh, was uh, – uh, was a member of Congress at that time, went on to become the senator from, uh, from, from Florida. But uh, so they had politicians previously who had flown. Why not John Glenn? Well, and, and, you know, Krista McAuliffe comes to mind and her, I mean, her, the, the, the teacher that follows after her who I don't yeah, yeah, remember. Barbara but, Morgan. Yeah, so, so I think those, yeah, interesting thought. What about Neil Armstrong? Why doesn't, what's Neil Armstrong's story here post-moonwalk? So Neil Armstrong is one of the fascinating characters that you can ever imagine. Uh, he is the quintessential test pilot. I, I mean, and by the way, he was also a Korean War hero. I mean, that's important to, to remember about his background. He'd flown planes off of, off of carriers during, during Korea in the 1950s. Um, the story of the bridges at Toko-ri, for those of you who are aficionados of 1950s films, that was Neil Armstrong's unit in the war. And, uh, and, and so he's got this illustrious career, but he gets out of the service. He goes to work as a research pilot for the NACA initially, and then as it transitions to NASA, is working uh, uh, in Southern California at the flight research facility that's out there when he is selected to be an astronaut in 1962. And he is your classic uh, sort of pocket protector, slide rule carrying uh, uh, engineer. First and foremost, he loved the engineering. 
The piloting, of course, he could do, and he did very well, but he really loved the engineering. And when we would have him talk at the Air and Space Museum, and he did that many times for us, he didn't really want to talk about Apollo very much. What he wanted to talk about was the airplanes he flew, the X-15, various other uh, test aircraft. And we went out to the Udvarhazy facility uh, one day with him in the uh, probably 2010, something like that. And uh, he just wanted to go out there and look around. And I took him out, and we were walking around out at this facility at Dulles Airport where they got all these great airplanes. And, and he's looking at him and he's just sort of pointing him and says, I flew that one and 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 oh, that one was a really hard one to fly and that one was a dream. And he would go on in and explain in great detail about this. And interestingly enough, most people didn't recognize him. But then there was a veterans group. They were wearing caps from an from a aircraft carrier that they had served on, and they all walked over to him because they knew who he was, and they introduced themselves. And he began to talk to them, and after about 10 minutes, I knew he didn't like sort of public things. I walked over to him and said, you know, I can, I can move you on out of here if you want to. And he says, no, no, I love talking to these guys. I'll do this all day. And, and that's the sort of guy he was, very, very uh, gracious with with people that he respected and, and could engage with on a sort of a, a, a small-time thing, but he, the spotlight he hated. Interestingly enough, when he left NASA, after he finished his work on the Apollo program, he went to the University of Cincinnati to teach engineering, to teach aerospace engineering to students. Imagine going into a freshman college class where you're learning engineering, and your teacher, your professor, is Neil Armstrong. Wow, how cool will that be? Yeah, or you're a Boy Scout and your space exploration merit badge counselor yeah. is Neil Armstrong. So it was a very conscious choice on his part to not give interviews, to not talk about it, which is you know kind of a lot different than Buzz Aldrin, the, yeah. the second man to go on the moon. Yeah, so I, they're different personalities. And, and interestingly enough, that crew uh, of, of Neil Armstrong in command, Buzz Aldrin as the, uh, uh, as the lunar module pilot, and um, – uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and Mike Collins in the spacecraft orbiting overhead, they were very well suited for each other. You've got Neil, who's sort of studious and introverted. You've got Buzz, who is really, really smart and really, really extroverted, but also a little bit of a pain to deal with sometimes. Uh, and then you've got Mike, who's sort of a calming influence for all of them. Uh, they, they worked really well together as a team. And... And the people who put them together as a team really earned their, earned their money that day. So there was a lot of, I would imagine, organizational psychology when you're putting together crews to go up, especially in a confined space like the Apollo Command Module. Absolutely. And, and these guys sort of live with each other for a couple of years as they're preparing for these missions. It's not just the time that they spend in that command module, which is pretty small on their trip to the moon. It's the hours upon hours and days upon days of training in which they're working in very close quarters with each other. They have to sort of get to the point where it's second nature to deal with each other. And there were blow-ups. They, they, you know, they got into arguments about various things. But I will say they each had their skill set and they each carried off their missions. So Neil will, will not go back up. Buzz Aldrin will not go Back up. Does he leave NASA shortly after he this, does. and what does he do after that? Well, Buzz, uh, Buzz has a variety of activities. He he falls on hard times. He's he's a um, 
in many ways, he's a he, he's very tragic figure in, in a lot of ways. So, uh, he, and he very he consciously talks about this. He had a drug and alcohol problem. Uh, it led to his divorce. It led to strained relations in his family, and uh, and it took him you know a decade to basically come out of that. Uh, and eventually he did, but it took him a while to sort of hit rock bottom and then get the treatments and, and, and live the lifestyle that, that made it possible for him to, uh, to go on to do the things he'd done previously. Like punch out, moon landing, <laughs> deniers, <laughs> deniers, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and Michael Collins will be one of the first space shuttle pilots. Is that correct? No, he also leaves NASA. Uh, he goes to work uh, for the Smithsonian, of all things. He becomes the first director of the National Air and Space Museum. And uh, he is there when they open the doors, uh, and he was obviously working toward this for a few years before this. In 1976, uh, he would move then from the Air and Space Museum directorship to the uh, Undersecretary for Science for the, uh, for the Smithsonian and eventually retire from that. Oh, so it, it is one of the Apollo astronauts, though, that flies one of the space shuttles, right? Early on, is it? So, uh, so there are... Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah, well, uh, the, the, the critical element there is John Young. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. so John Young goes back to a very early 60s era uh, as an astronaut. He flew Gemini, he flew Apollo, and he flew the shuttle. So the, there is this story that whether it's been made, made up or, or not made up, but exaggerated by scholars and, and journalists and everything else that this conflict – as they're working on Apollo 11, of who's going to get out first. <laughs> and there's this, this idea that, that both Buzz and Neil, that there's some kind of cognitive dissonance between the two. Is that a correct? Yeah, it's not quite that simple. I mean, there was no question who was actually going to get out. Uh, it, it, you know, Buzz might have liked the fact that uh, he, he might have liked being first, obviously. I think he probably would have. But he knew that wasn't going to happen. And, uh, and, and Neil, as the commander of the mission, uh, has a responsibility to do that. And he totally nailed it in terms of his first, you know, going down, his first words on the moon. And, uh, you know, that one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, you know, he dreamed that up himself <laughs> and uh, said it. Uh, there were people who were trying to give him all kinds of money to say something else, like first, first stepping on the moon, say, drink Coca-Cola or <laughs> something like that. Um, that. I just use that as one example among many that, uh, that he could have uh, done. He did not. There was no way that was going to happen. And it was totally in keeping with his personality. He, and, and quite different from the second crew to set foot on the moon. Uh, my favorite astronaut, Pete Conrad, uh, from this era was the commander for Apollo 12. And that was a precision landing where they were supposed to go close to the surveyor spacecraft, which they did. They went over. They walked over there from the, from, uh, the landing craft. They pulled pieces of it off, and they brought them home. Uh, but Conrad's first words on the moon were, yippee, I made it. <laughs> and followed up with, that might have been one small step for Neil, but, boy, it was a big one for me. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our second break. And I got to tell you, when you gave us this song, I, it was pretty amazing to me. It made me <laughs> smile. It makes me smile. So this song is called Surprise, and I should say with the exclamation point, Surprise, by Gunnar Madsen. Can you tell us a little bit about 
why you chose this? Yeah, well, I love this song. So uh, it's a part of the science fiction folk music world that's out there, and there's a lot of this known as filk uh, in the in the genre. And there's almost always you go to a sci-fi convention or someplace like that, there will be a filk sing, in which people bring their guitars and perform. And they write their own songs. Sometimes they're with uh, lyrics of their own making, but to tunes that you know. And sometimes, if they're well-known, they may sing them as a group, almost like a hymn. So the TV series that was on 20-plus years ago, Firefly, which I loved uh, and only lasted one season, uh, the theme song to Firefly is often the closing song for Filk Sings. And everybody sings it holding hands. They all know the words. All right. So let's hear Surprise by Gunnar Madsen. Ha 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 come here. That story to tell you. You know, it was Neil Armstrong jumping up and down on the moon. Oh, we laughed like in Moscow when we saw that. Remember the 50s, those fat complacent days when the future seemed a century away. Then up went Sputnik, gave the world a butt kick and made it clear tomorrow's last today. Hello there! Sputnik sails giggling through the skies. Red flags, red faces, jump in the race as the space age begins with a surprise. You generals once thought Von Braun a waste of cash and got our needed treatment really bad. Then that global shot put gave you a hot foot and beep beep, you blasted off the pad. Hello there! Sputnik sails giggling through the skies. Red flags, red faces, jump in the race as the space age begins with a surprise. Done for a threat, propaganda or prestige. The point is, the thing was in the sky. It made the generals frown and put their money down and meet that bet or know the reason why. Hello there! Sputnik sails giggling through the skies. Red flags, red faces, jump in the race as the space age begins with a surprise. That's how it started all those years ago. The push that got us climbing into space. Cynic beginnings, greed for big winnings. But look at all we've gotten from that race. The beep, 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 hello there! Sputnik sails giggling through the skies. Red flags, red faces, jump in the race as the space age begins with this surprise. <laughs> Sputnik wore out and spiraled back to Earth. Hungry and greedy, it burned up very soon. Hail and goodbye to that goose in the sky. And in 12 more years, a man walked on the moon. Beep, 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 hello there. Sputnik sails giggling through the sky. Red flag, red faces, jump in the race. And the space age begins with a surprise. Oh, 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 oh.
That was Surprise by Gunnar Madsen. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. I appreciate that. So I want to ask you about something that you wrote in your book, Apollo's Legacy. Mm-hmm. And, and you, write, you write this. Memory, myth, and history are closely akin to each other. Essentially, they are stories that explain how things got to be they, the way they are. But common parlance suggests that memory is often faulty, myth is fiction, and only history is or at least aspires to be true. History to me, however, is an attempt to recount, model, or reconstruct the memory of the past for the purposes of the present. And I want to read that and then go into this idea of ask the question about what we get wrong about the Apollo era and the Apollo program. In other words, that it has become myth and legend and American uh, folklore for Mm -hmm. so many people. What do we get wrong and right about this story? Okay, well, much about what we think about Apollo is pretty close to correct. But one area that's really significant to think about, uh, in the Apollo story, and and when I, I use the term story, in the truest sense of the term here, how we sort of think about it. The, uh, it, it suggests that when we put our minds to something, we can achieve that something, whatever it is. And, uh, and Apollo tells how we can do that. So we had a president who said, let's go to the moon. Everybody sort of locked arms. They moved out to accomplish this objective, and they did so at the end of on the time schedule that was established by the president when they started out on this. And, uh, and if we can do it there, we can do it anywhere. And, and so there's so many things that sort of fed out of that concept that um, big things, if we can, if we, if, and, and there used to be a saying that was used all the time. If we can put a man on the moon, why can't we? And then you can fill in the, bank, the, the blank of anything else that you think is hard. Why can't we solve cancer? Why can't we uh, solve, uh, uh, solve uh, inequalities of, of uh, resources? Why can't we do this or that? And, and the suggestion is we can. And, and partly that's true, but it's also a whole lot harder than, uh, than that just suggests. And... Lyndon Johnson, for instance, looks at Apollo and he says in his memoir, when I, when I saw us doing that, I thought, you know, we can bring health care to the masses. We can solve the inequalities that exist in this nation. We can do this through, a, through our great society programs of which he considered Apollo an example of a great success as a great society program. So... Why then is this relevant today? So we, 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 and we can talk about, you know, Mars and the, the desire to explore and all that kind of stuff. But, but why the discussions of the Apollo program, which ended at 19, in 1972, and I'm not sure that evolved. I mean, it doesn't, like, there's, is there an evolution between the Apollo program and the space shuttle, or are they mutually exclusive? Well, they're not mutually exclusive. The, the same people who took us to the moon are the ones who built the space shuttle. And oh, by the way, you know, you sort of ask yourself the question at the end of the Apollo program, and NASA did this, what do you do for an encore? You've just been to the moon. And the reality is 
there, there may be a little hubris at NASA on this thing. You know, we went to the moon. We ought to be able to build a space shuttle that can go to and from Earth orbit pretty easily. That turned out to be harder than they thought, but they also didn't have the budget that they really needed to pull it off. But they came pretty close. They got probably 75 to 80 percent of where they wanted to go with that. So I'll, I'll give them high marks for that, even on a big budget. That uh, that was nothing like what they had with Apollo. So so then why why does this matter? I mean, and the reason I, I don't mean to be flippant with that, mm-hmm. but but there is this discussion during the the Apollo Eleven launch where Reverend Abernathy, the successor of Dr. King, you know, comes in with with this what mule driven right. cart and says, "We have so many problems here on Earth. Why are we spending so much money going to the moon?" And I, and I, to his credit, out of the other side of his mouth, he says. We love the astronauts. We love America, but maybe we need to rethink our priorities. And so could we not say that same thing today? We certainly could. And and I do believe, I mean, they actually struck the right chord there, both Ralph Abernathy representing a community of people who were in unbelievably bad shape and needed help, uh, and uh, Thomas Paine, who was the NASA administrator by that time, who responded to Abernathy and saying, look, you know, if I could solve the problems of poverty in this nation by not pushing the button to go to the moon, I would not push that button. But you and I both know that it's more complex than that. Uh, but, and, 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 and then he did fall back on this thing. But, you know, if we set our minds to this, we can solve this too. And, uh, and, and they sort of ended up agreeing that, yeah, they could. And we need to look at our priorities and see where we are expending our resources to ensure that we do the right thing for all of the American public, not just for some communities. So what do we say to, to, to Sophie and Reese and Evan's generation who are in the studio with us today about why all of this is important? Why should they even care that we went to the moon? Okay. So uh, two pieces to that particular response. The first one is, I would contend that the technologies that come out of this effort have impacts far beyond anything that space age is involved in. And, uh, and in that sense, I have a couple of examples I like to use from Apollo on that. And, and, and they're, they're, it's not straightforward. Uh, it's more complex than you might think. And I'll just, I'll, if I've got, if I've got a minute, I will try to, to, to lay this out for you. So in 1962, NASA lets a contract with the Stark Draper Laboratory at MIT to build the Apollo guidance computer. Technology and computing was not very sophisticated at that point in time, certainly by what it would become later on. And, uh, and so the best minds that the Draper Lab could find, about a thousand of them and so are brought together, and they build an Apollo guidance computer, and it works. And it's nothing spectacular in terms of what we are used to today with our computing power. At the time that Apollo takes place, in 1969 to 72, their work is done. The contract is uh, terminated. The thousand or so people that are working there disperse, taking with them the knowledge that they gained in the process and their Rolodexes. And for those of you who are younger who don't know what a Rolodex is, it's simply uh, a, a physical version of your directory that you have on your phone <laughs> of names and, and how to reach them. And, 
And they scattered everywhere. They went to corporations. They went to universities. They went to think tanks. They went all over the place taking with them those things. And they seeded the microelectronics and computing industry of the 1970s. They are the ones that took us forward. I mean, people love to talk about Steve Jobs and guys in the garage trying to figure out how to, how to defeat uh, Bell Telephone to make international calls for free. That's fine. But it's really those other people who are in these other settings who really expand the envelope in terms of capabilities in computing power. How do you put a price tag on that? In my mind, Apollo, if you got nothing else out of it but that, more than pays for itself. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we fundamentally have to get off this planet. I've said this repeatedly in the past, uh, and, and I will say it again. We, we must become a multiplanetary species. It's just a question of, uh, of doing this sooner rather than later. And, and what level is the right amount to spend to accomplish that? Not very much, but is 1% of the federal budget too much to spend? By the way, if it were 1% of the federal budget, it'd be twice what NASA gets today. So in my mind, I don't think that's too much to spend. That's an investment in our future. Isn't that appropriate to make as an investment in the future? 1%? To survive as a species. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's – well, thank you. That's a great answer to that question. Let's move into our final break. Uh, so this is going to be – we're going to listen to a very, very classic song – from a brilliant performer, Space Oddity by David Bowie. Do you want to ask why you – can you tell us why you chose this one? Well, I, I – I, first off, I like the song going way back to the time that Bowie first, you know, recorded it. But if there's one thing about it that sort of brings it up in my mind, uh, Chris Hadfield, who was an astronaut, Canadian astronaut, flying on the International Space Station, recorded a version of it in space which you can watch on YouTube if you wish. All right, Space Oddity by David Bowie. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ten. Ground control Nine. to Major Tom. Eight. Seven. Six. Commencing five. Down engine. Four. Three. Two. Check ignition one. and may God's love Lift off. Yeah. 
That was Space Oddity by David Bowie. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. I appreciate uh, that intro. <laughs> You're welcome. So uh, what I want to do before we move on to our the segment about we talk about joy is I'm very interested in what are the, the, the books or films or TV shows that we should be watching if we're interested in this that that have some other than just artistic merit, but have something that that would in popular culture. What are the best representations of the Apollo program, also in in fiction and nonfiction? Okay, well, uh, so in terms of books, um, I'll I'll make a shameless plug for my book, Apollo's <laughs> Legacy. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't think mine was was one that everybody should read. But uh, it, it is one that everyone should read. 
But, so. but, but beyond that, there are some really fine books associated with, uh, with the Apollo program that tell the story. And, uh, and I would just mention a couple of them that I think are, are really good. So, and it's broader than Apollo, but Howard McCurdy's book, Space in the American Imagination. The original edition of that came out in 1997, so it's a, bit, a little bit long in the tooth, but there's been a, a second edition that's uh, come out more recently. And it really lays out sort of the relationship between American culture and space age. And I think it's a, a, a really important book in that context. Uh, I would uh, I would recommend uh, uh, Monique Laney's book about the German Rocketeers. It's called German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, about the Werner von Braun team and how they became American heroes and celebrities during the 1960s as they worked with the uh, NASA program to send us to the moon. That's a significant book as well. There's a couple of classics that are out there, and... Um, and one of them is called A Man in the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, a 1994 publication, multiple editions since that time, but a really very good book. Uh, and then some that are broader than that, that don't really talk so much about Apollo, uh, but Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, a classic book. You simply cannot, if you're going to be involved in understanding this, uh, avoid reading that book, which is actually quite excellent. And an amazing film, too. Right? It is an amazing film where they, where they took a little license here and there. <laughs> but the book doesn't do that, but the, but the film does. But the film's still great. Yeah. I, I, the I enema scene is classic yeah. in the right stuff. Exactly. All played for humor. Yes, well. And, um, and then uh, in terms of astronaut memoirs, uh, the one that everybody should start with is Mike Collins' Carrying the Fire, a very thoughtful, reflective book that sort of talks about the meaning of all of this. That's probably enough to, to leave you with. So to watch, what am I watching? Oh, if you want to watch uh, uh, movies about Apollo, let's start with Apollo 13, the 1995 movie with Tom Hanks as the star, terrific film. They did a really good job. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that all of the ingredients of drama that you're used to, uh, you know, some sort of villain that's out there that has to be defeated, uh, some sort of bad guy, all kinds of twists and turns, uh, surprise ending. None of those are present there. We all know how it's going to end. There aren't any bad guys. There's no villains. And yet it really created a beautiful story that, uh, that really does resonate in pretty fundamental ways. I would add to that. Uh, the Tom Hanks pioneered multi-part series on HBO, From the Earth to the Moon, that does the same sort of thing. All of them with a lot of attention to detail. So I, I would suggest that those are good. Fictional things, you can't beat 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968, an early version that really does talk about the, the nature of spaceflight in pretty fundamental ways with, with a surprise ending. Yeah. Uh, cool. Thank you for the Apex Book and Movie Club pick, which we should start, actually. <laughs> That's basically what the last segment is. That is. That yeah. is. Thank you, you Reese. That is the last segment. That. So we'll move into the last segment, which is this. Uh, this is what is bringing us joy this week. So we'll start with you. Roger Lanius, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? <laughs> so... This is going to sound silly. My wife introduced me to a show that I'd never seen called Gilmore Girls. <laughs> You'd never seen the Gilmore Girls? Never seen the Gilmore Girls. <laughs> That's such a good show. So we are now watching it on Netflix. 
binging it, I guess, is the right term, because uh, there's usually more than one episode per night. And it's a continuing saga. And it's a lot of fun, and even though the characters sort of make me crazy sometimes, <laughs> I'm enjoying it a lot. So that brings me joy. <laughs> um, so good. And, and, and then beyond that, something else that's make, that has brought me joy is being here at Southern Utah University, uh, seeing all these young people, talking to them, engaging with them. I was walking down in the poster session and looking at these mostly, I think, undergraduates who are doing serious investigations on all kinds of topics, some of which I didn't understand because it was like chemistry and things of that nature, but, uh, but uh, are, are really sort of making that step into adulthood uh, moving forward in their careers. Thank you. This may come as a shock to you, Reese, but in my home currently, we actually have the box set of the DVD release of the Gilmore Girls. <laughs> it it would have shocked me, but the Gilmore Girls is just for everyone. <laughs> like, true. it's great. It's like the Apollo program. It's yeah. for everybody, for all mankind. Uh, all right. <laughs> Reese Whitaker, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Uh, recently, sticking to the topic of space, I just recently caught up. It's fake space, but with Star Wars The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. Recently just got all cut up, caught up with that on the third season. I believe it's out. I just love it. I also love Bad Batch. That's a, mm-hmm. one of the animated shows that also airs on Disney+. Plus. Those Star Wars is great. I talked trash on Star Trek before we went. I love Star Wars. I'm just gonna say it. I actually am working my way through the Clone Wars. I I did that once. I will never do it again. Hey, Uh, Mandalorian's not done though. No, it's not done. So I'm waiting until it's done. Well, I don't know when it will be done. That's the. Well, I mean, not done. Like like the season. Oh, okay. You're a season. You're a binger. Yes, because I have so much to watch. Gotcha. All right. Thank you, Evan Miller. What are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy besides how to remove window <laughs> marker from your car windows? Um, I just this last weekend went camping with my family in St. George, and while we were in the trailer, we were looking for a movie, and we ended up watching World War Z, which um, very entertaining movie. Um, but I think more or less it was, it was hanging out with the family um, just in close quarters and watching a fun movie. Um, brought me a lot of joy to be with them and not at school or doing homework. So, Not your affection for Brad Pitt? No, although he did great. <laughs> although, have you ever read the book World War Z, on a side note? Max Brooks, who's the son of Mel Brooks, wrote the book World War Z, and a good friend of mine, Carrie Snow, who we know, uh, mentioned it to me. You should read the book. It is okay. phenomenal. Okay. Phenomenal. Sounds good. All right. Sophie Javage, the original Swifty. <laughs> My good friend, what is what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Okay, I guess I'm kind of cheating here, but at lunch we were talking about Star Trek and Star Wars and just all these different types of space movies, and I... I am my father's daughter, and I was raised on all of these different type of space movies, novels, and educated in every sense of the way on it to the best of my parents' ability. And it has brought me a lot of joy to listen and re-talk about, because I grew, I grew up watching The Clone Wars, which I love, Reese. I like it. I'm I just, I, I watched it once. I'm not doing it again. I... I've watched, like, every episode at least five times. There's, like, 30 good episodes. There, I think, yeah. And I think, and I think there's, like, over 100 actual episodes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You learn a lot. But, like, I grew up going to watch Star Trek, all the remakes that they were trying to make, and, like, 
that brought me so much joy because I could spend that time with my family and connect with my uncles and my dad through something I honestly had no clue about. And like, granted, I still don't know a lot, but that was such a good memory of being able to share that piece of my life with them. So that is what's currently bringing me joy. Okay, Ryan, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to? I This was a struggle for me. I had two, but I'm going to give you one. And it's something that actually Roger talked about. I have admittedly been kind of a space cadet for a long time, both in popular culture and as a scholar. And one of the things that I keep coming back to, that this allowed me to come back to again, is the film Apollo 13, mm-hmm. which, which is... Uh, it is an emotional experience for me on a variety of levels. One, because it is a beautifully manipulative form of cinema where it ties visual and audio music together to to manipulate how you want to feel about these things. But it's a film that has attention to detail. It's a film that that really teaches us the good of being humans. What we as humans can do. And I love the, the, there's many scenes that I I resonate with, but part of that is because as we're putting together Roger's playlist for today, uh, for the speech, I put a lot of clips from Paul 13 in there, audio clips from the soundtrack, but which gave you memories. But the, the, at the very end, when Tom Hanks, who's playing Jim Lovell lands on the carrier and he says, we were the three people up there, but we could not have done it without all of these people here. And it's all of these thousands of people with slide rulers and pencil protectors that made this happen. While the astronauts did it, it was this massive group of people who never get the spotlight who really did the heavy lifting. And that amazes me. And that's what's bringing me joy. That's super cool. So thank you, everyone. We're going to go out with the final pick from our guest, Roger Lanius, and it's the ever-classic Rocket Man by Elton John. Do you want to give us a last word here? Sure. Well, Rocket Man is one of those great uh, – I mean, it's a great song just in general, but it's sort of been def- a defining song at NASA. Everybody knows it. Everybody plays it. And uh, you show up at a bar in Houston where the astronauts show up, and there's almost always Rocket Man playing in the background at some point in the evening. All right. Thank you for everyone for listening to the Apex Radio Hour, Rocket Man by Elton John. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. my wife It's lonely out in space On such a time I am best flight Rocket man, burning out his fuse.
Cause ain't the kind of place to raise your kids In fact, it's cold as hell And there's no one there to raise them If you did Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us every Thursday at 3 p.m. right here on Thunder 91. We would love for you to come to our events on campus. For more information, check out suu.edu apex. Until next time, that was the Apex Hour on Thunder 91.1.